this is the fourth and last Sunday of Advent. And as you know, during the season of Advent, we've been exploring the themes of light and darkness in the Gospel of John. The light has come into the world, the true light. Jesus Christ is the true light, and he's come into the world. And we looked at how that light will shine brighter still. But the problem that exists is that we love the darkness instead of the light. And yet, as Roger talked about last week, the, the true light came into the world not just to expose us or just to warm us, but to transform and change us. We don't have to stay in the darkness. We don't have to continue loving the darkness. That The light can actually transform our affections and create within us a love for the light, a desire for the light. And so today, the last idea I want to explore in this series is this. There is a window of opportunity to respond to the light. And this is evident in our passage today, John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. There's a window of opportunity to respond to the light. And so we're going to look at three big ideas to get to that. Uh, the first is the darkest hour. The second is getting lost in the darkness. And the last is uh, the setting sun. So open your Bibles with me to John chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this purpose, I've come into this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. As Jesus shines into the darkness, as his light illuminates a dark world, we should not be mistaken. Jesus shining into the darkness was not an easy thing for him. Jesus doesn't have this aloof, detached, emotionally removed posture toward the world. Jesus became fully human, which means he experienced the full gamut of human emotion. And when he says, my soul is troubled, it's a real experience and a grievous experience. It could be translated, my soul is in turmoil, or my soul is in disarray, or my soul is in anguish. Jesus, he's experiencing deep, deep emotional disorientation. But how come? Jesus is heading into his darkest hour. Jesus is but an evening away from the cross. And he says, for this purpose, I've come into the world. And it troubles him. Because he knows what he has to endure to save us. Utter darkness. The darkness of our sin cast upon him. The darkness and evil of the world attacking him. The darkness of his father forsaking him for but a moment. And as this moment of the cross approaches, Jesus will be troubled even to the point of sweating drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. And yet, the turmoil he's experiencing in his soul leading up to this moment will be nothing compared to the turmoil he will face on the cross. But Jesus also knows, he knows this is why he came into the world. And so he prays, Father, glorify your name. I want to pause here briefly uh, to be very clear about something. If you want to understand who Jesus is, you have to look to the cross. He is not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a nice religious leader. He's not just a martyr. The cross wasn't accidental. It wasn't just a bad situation. It wasn't something that just spiraled out of control. It was the very reason he came into the world. What began in a manger was always heading to this moment on the cross. And so if you do not know Jesus crucified, you can not truly know him at all. 
And it's easy, I know, to get squeamish when we talk about the cross, especially this early in the sermon. Julia always says, keep it to the end, you know. Uh, it's, it's easy to avoid talking about the cross. It's easy to just relegate it to a symbol on a necklace devoid of any meaning. Uh, one of my seminary professors loved telling this story. I heard it like six times while I was in, in his class. And he said he was in this jewelry store, and he overheard a conversation between a young woman and the clerk. And the young woman came in and she said, I, I would like one of those cross necklaces. And she looked at it and she said, and the clerk you know, showed it to her. And, and, and then she said, well, what about that one with the little man on it? And so he brought it out and, and she said, who is this? Why is he on the, the cross? And the clerk said, I don't know. And my seminary professor was just baffled. Like there's people that don't even know what the symbol means. They're just wearing it. And even if, we, even if the clerk could have said, well, it's Jesus Christ. You know, he was crucified. We still need to know what that means. Because somehow, nailed to the cross, Jesus was bringing glory to God. Somehow, by going this way, he was bringing splendor and majesty and renown and honor and magnificence to God. And yet, the cross is such a dark place. It's, it's a place of horrific torture. You know, the cross isn't just Jesus' darkest hour. It is the darkest hour the world has ever known. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that when Jesus was crucified, darkness came over the whole land. As the true light was being put out for the sake of the world, the world became dark. The light which illuminates every single person was being extinguished. God in the flesh tasted death. And the world knew its darkest hour for a moment as the light of the world entered into utter darkness for the sake of God's glory and beauty. But how exactly does that bring God glory? I'll be up front. That's a very hard thing to wrap our heads around. Uh, that God would be glorified by the crucifixion of his son. And we'll get to that. But for now, what we need to focus on is this. Jesus knows exactly where he's going and exactly what he's doing. And he knows the cost. He knows the turmoil. And he will walk into the darkness for the sake of God's glory. And yet it still causes him deep, deep emotional distress. Because he knows he won't just face the darkness. He will be consumed by the darkness cast upon him. But with the resolve in his soul to walk this path, God the Father speaks. You know, look at verse 28 again. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. God the Father is, is with the Son. He reassures him and he does so publicly. And how do the people respond? You know, look at verse 29 for a moment. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. And others said an angel has spoken to him. You know, there's some confusion. Is it thunder? Is it the voice of an angel? But no one seems to actually understand what was said. And so Jesus answers them in verse 30 through 33. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus, he wants people to under, understand. He wants them to know he's heading to the cross. He will be lifted up. And this is for the sake of salvation being offered to all people. But what do the people say? Verse 34, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. 
How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They get caught up in the details. The Messiah is not supposed to die. No, what are you talking about? And what's interesting, if, if you look at this entire interaction between Jesus and the crowd, we see what the darkness does to us. Very clearly, we see what the darkness does to us. It blinds us. We're lost in the darkness. The light shines, but we can't see it. If God speaks from heaven, we call it thunder. If God speaks from earth through the mouth of his son, what he says to us doesn't make any sense. So in the darkness, we can't hear, we can't see, we can't understand. And what we don't want to miss is that even the religious can't make sense of things in the dark. They quote scriptures to Jesus, but only to question him. You know, in other words, they're saying, Jesus, what you're saying doesn't make sense to us. All of it doesn't make sense. The thunder or the voice from heaven, Jesus speaking about being crucified, they can't make sense of it. But the question is why? In the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the final battle, uh, there's a, a group of black dwarves uh, who can't believe in Aslan, you know, the Lion King of Narnia. Uh, there had been a, a false Aslan and they were duped and they didn't want to be duped again. But they do, however, believe in darkness. And so when Aslan has returned the true Aslan, they say, where is he? Who is he? Show him to us. And even when Aslan himself, uh, Aslan, I keep saying Aslan, Aslan, uh, himself provides them a great feast of pies and pigeons, trifles, you know, ices and wines and golden goblets, the dwarves believe that they're only eating things that would be found in a stable. Hay, an old turnip, raw cabbage, uh, dirty drinking water, dinner at the Stearns house. And... Uh, the dwarves, no, that would be if I'm cooking, just to be clear. But uh, the dwarves, they only believe, they only believe in what they can see, but they will only see what they can believe. Any experience with the light has no effect because they interpret all proofs of the light by what they've chosen to believe. They believe they exist in darkness, and so they exist in darkness. Here's what Aslan says. They will not let us help them. Their prison is their own minds, and yet they are in that prison, and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. You know, it's likely that some of the people in the crowd who said it thundered when God spoke probably didn't believe that God could speak audibly. Since that's what they believe, they hear thunder. Others who are, have rigid expectations of what the Messiah can and can't be can't comprehend what Jesus says about the cross. And most of the people in the crowd, they're waiting to see if Jesus turns out to be the Messiah, but they don't believe that he is. And maybe they're afraid of being duped by yet another false Messiah, but either way, they're waiting to believe based on what they see. But this passage shows us that they will only see what they believe. Thunder and a young man who might be confused about being the Messiah. You see, the problem is that the darkness darkens our senses. Some in the crowd say it thundered. Some of them say the Messiah isn't supposed to die, but they're both wrong. Others, however, they say uh, an angel has spoken. And they're partially right, but they're not entirely right. You know, throughout the scriptures, God, when he speaks, he usually speaks through an angel or through a prophet. And verse 28, it doesn't say God's voice. It says a voice. You know, a voice speaking God's, on God's behalf, but a voice nonetheless. And those who attribute this, this sound to an angel show no indication, though, that they understood or comprehend what was said. They just know it was a voice. They don't know the words. They say an angel has spoken, 
to him. They don't understand. They miss that the voice was for them. As Jesus says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. They heard better than those who called the voice thunder, that's for sure. But the darkness even keeps those who are partially right from understanding too. It's, it's so easy to settle, you know, for the shadows cast by the light. This is just like Plato's cave. You know, people trapped in the darkness in the cave learn to love uh, the illusions projected on the walls. But it's just a shadow. And if they settle for the illusions, they're no closer to the reality or truth or source of the light. They're still in just as much darkness, even though they're experiencing a glimmer of the light or a product of the light. So those who, who say, I heard an angel speak to Jesus, you know, that's pretty impressive. That would be pretty cool. But that's not exactly what happened. God was speaking for their sake, and they didn't understand it. They're settling for a shadow cast upon the wall by the light. And we're just as prone to do this, too. The other day, I had a, a very serene moment. My eyes were closed, you know, I was warm. I was enjoying the aroma of fresh wood. I could hear the crackle of a fire. You know, a slight breeze would hit me from time to time. You know, I was just lying in there and soaking it all in. You know, are you with me there? Like that just serene moment. And then I opened my eyes. And the warmth, it was my baseboard heater. The aroma of the wood was the relatively new hardwood floors in our home. The crackle, the fireplace app on my Apple TV. Uh, the breeze, a fan in the corner of my room. Now, it was all real, but it was also artificial. With my eyes closed in the darkness, for a moment, I felt like I was in a remote cabin in the woods. It was glorious. And then with my eyes open, I was back home in the city. And this is what happens to us in the darkness. We think we're experiencing the light, but our senses are still off. We're deceived, we're settling for shadows and artificial imitations of the light. And this is the great, great danger of the darkness. Like those who heard the voice of God as thunder, darkness can blind us completely still. You know, we hear anything spiritual and we just immediately write it off. Why? Because you have to see it to believe it. You don't see anything spiritual, so you don't believe in it. Or like those who identified the voice of God as an angel. Uh, the darkness can trick us into thinking we found the light, but still we're settling for the darkness and not the source of light itself. You know, you hear the slightest thing of anything spiritual and you just assume it's true. You show no discernment or wisdom or discretion in deciding what or what not to believe. So whether it's entirely or partially, uh, the darkness blinds us to spiritual truths and realities. Now this is a totally bleak situation. You know, if we're blind and groping around in the dark, what are we supposed to do? Well, let's look to Christ's words in verses 35 through 36. Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you might become sons of light. This is interesting. You know, Jesus, he simply says, walk while you have the light. And while you have the light, believe in the light. Walk and believe. These are his instructions to those who are utterly blinded by darkness. Walk toward the light, believe in the light. And this baffles us because we want to make sense of the light before we walk toward it, don't we? 
We want to understand it and know it before we believe it. But let's say you're dropped into uh, Plato's cave, knocked unconscious, you know, completely disoriented, no sense of direction, and it's just utter darkness. But in the distance, you just see a small flickering light, like a little pin drop of light. What are you going to do? Well, if you want to live, which let's just assume you do, are you going to fumble around in the darkness, getting more and more lost in the dark? No, you're going to walk toward the light. But why? Because you inherently trust the light based off of its very nature of being light. You might not know where it will lead you exactly, but you know it will be better than where you are. And St. John's Gospel is very clear. In our darkness, we're helplessly lost, hopelessly so, and we can't make sense of anything on our own. All we can do is walk toward Jesus, the true light. We can only believe in him as we do so. St. Anselm, he's uh, among one of the most brilliant minds in church history. He came up with the ontological argument for God's existence, which I won't repeat here, but if you read it, it's brilliant, and scholars and philosophers are still debating it to this very day, like a thousand years later. He's that smart. Here's what he said. I do not seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. For I believe this, unless I believe, I will not understand. Let me read it again. I do not seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. For I believe this, unless I believe, I will not understand. Now, is St. Anselm just recommending circular reasoning? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, yeah, but that's because he believes all reasoning is circular, and he's right. In other words, he's saying there's no epistemological Switzerland. That was for Don Lewis, but, you know, our seminary professor. What I mean is, you know, there's no neutral place from which we can stand to observe and understand the world because we're within it. There's no neutrality. It's a, it's a myth that our culture is bought into. And Ansem understands that our mind are utterly dark and therefore cannot comprehend the light unless the light first illuminates them. Therefore, we have to believe in the light in, in order to understand it. And the crowd listening to Jesus they're in the dark. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Hence, they don't understand the signs or what Jesus says about himself. And the only way for them to understand, then, is to trust Jesus implicitly as the light. They have to believe in him in order to grow in their understanding of who he is. And this doesn't mean you check your mind at the door. That's not what I'm advocating. It means you acknowledge that we not only believe in what we see, but we see what we believe. And this is true even if you're a scientist. I know many of you are. Uh, you believe what you see by using the scientific method. You observe and study the empirical world. Yet you see what you believe because of basic, unprovable beliefs inherent in the scientific method. And, and all scientists are aware of these presuppositions like this, that the universe is actually external. There is no way to actually prove that statement. We could be a bunch of brains in the laboratory somewhere. We can't prove that we're not. It's not the best argument. I know, but people make it. Uh, the other is that you, the presupposition is that the universe is contingent and knowable. Assuming that it is external, that we are actually capable of knowing it, is a huge presupposition that we can't prove. But you assume these things, and therefore, you see what you believe. 
This is true even if you have uh, questions about Jesus. Maybe you feel like you just don't know enough. You need to learn more still. And you're right, you do. You can learn more and more and more and more and more. And you won't ever get to the point of understanding where your understanding replaces faith. There will always be a point where you have to take that step and believe. It requires risk, but once you take that step, you'll find that understanding becomes infinitely easier. And so when it comes to believing in Jesus before understanding him fully, it's a matter of simply changing our sight. It's a matter of believing in order to see. And we distrust our own perceptions of reality because of the darkness of the world and the darkness of ourselves. And if we need to understand in order to believe, we will never believe on our own because we're in darkness and it blinds us and it distorts our senses. But like Anselm, we can implicitly trust Jesus as the true light who reveals all things and we believe in him in order to understand. Maybe you're not convinced. I wouldn't be surprised if you're not. Uh, why shouldn't we trust ourselves? You, know, you think, oh, I can trust my senses. Jesus is really clear. Look at verses 35 and 36 again. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. We shouldn't trust ourselves first because darkness is not passive. The darkness wants to overcome us and overtake us. It wants to consume us. It wants to keep us from stepping into the light and finding life. Darkness wants us to remain lost. It wants us to remain blind. It wants us to walk aimlessly, not knowing where we're going. Darkness blinds us and actively works to keep us blind. And secondly, that line from Jesus' lips, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going, Describes so much of our own experience, doesn't it? You know, despite all of your accomplishments, all that you've done, all that you've seen, all that you hope to do with your life, how often do you still feel like you have no idea where you're heading? Or maybe you've arrived and you've done a ton of what you set out to do, but how often do you still wonder, is this it? Is this what it leads to? No matter what we do or accomplish in the darkness, it will never lead us to what we're truly trying to find because in the darkness, we don't know where we're going because that's the nature of darkness. But if we step out of the darkness and into the light, we initially fear what we're going to lose, right? We know the dark. We've become comfortable with the dark. You know, the dark, it's not so bad. And maybe my eyes will adjust over time. You know, we don't want to give up the, the habits and patterns in our lives that are associated with the darkness, whether that's um, drinking too much and having a problem that you can't admit, or whether it's uh, uh, active addiction to pornography, whether you're male or female, whether it's uh, just like a proclivity to judge and gossip about people and you just do it. You know, these things we know and we kind of come back to them over and over again because we find comfort in them because they're what we know. We fear giving these things up, strangely, because we've become accustomed to them. But what we gain is infinitely greater than anything we ever leave behind. Look at verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. We become sons 
of light. As Roger said, the, the light has shone not just to warm us up, but to change us. And it fundamentally changes our very identity and nature. We're no longer defined by darkness. We're no longer blinded by darkness. We're defined by the light. Our identity is transformed by the light. You know, we're enveloped and brought into God's presence, into God's love, and we're adopted as his children, and we're given access to everything that he has. And for the first time, we can finally see. We were blind, and we can see. And all of this, all of this is possible because Jesus walked into his darkest hour. Jesus walked into the darkness of the cross and allowed the darkness to overcome him or consume him, but not overcome him. There he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there darkness came over the whole world as the true light of the world died. But he didn't die so that the world would be left in darkness. He died so that we could be brought out of the darkness, that we might become children of the light. And that's why the cross brings God so much glory. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says this, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus walks head on into the darkness so that we can walk into the light. He walks head on into the darkness to bring God glory by bringing many sons and daughters to glory. As we wrap up, we just need to consider one last thing. We don't want to miss how much Jesus emphasizes responding to the light while you can still see it shining. Verse 35, 36, he says, The light is among you for a little while longer, and walk while you have the light. One more time, while you have the light, believe in the light. He says this three times in two verses. And in the context of the passage, Jesus is talking about his imminent death. You know, he's not going to be with them much longer. The light is, is going to be consumed by the darkness in a day's time. So he's being quite literal. And when he says, walk in the light or believe in the light, we should just hear echoes of what he has said throughout the Gospels. Follow me. I am the true light. I am eternal life. Follow me out of the darkness. But this warning, it still applies to us too. God, in his grace, has allowed the light to continue shining a little longer still. But the window of opportunity to respond to the light will come to a close. It'll either come to a close at our death, or it'll come to a close when Christ returns. And how we respond will determine if we spend eternity wandering aimlessly in the dark, unfulfilled and lost and separated from God, or if we spend eternity in the light as children of the light, as children of God. And I think God knows we're going to do everything we can to put off responding to the light. There's something within us that just resists walking toward the light. Because we want to stay in the darkness. We want to live however we, ple you know, we please. And so we say, well, I'll just make a deathbed confession. But there's a twofold danger to this. The, the first is um, it assumes that you're going to live to an old age and that your mind is still going to be intact. But the truth is some of you are going to die a lot sooner than that. I don't know which one of you, so don't worry about it, but we're all going to die, and we don't know when. We have the assumption that it'll be when we're older. It could be tomorrow. It could be today. It could be 10 years from now. It could be 20 years from now. We simply don't know. 
But the, 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 the second assumption is, is assuming that, say you do live to a ripe old age to make a deathbed confession, it's a, this still assumes that your heart isn't going to get harder toward the light over time. That by the time you reach there, that you would still even want to make that confession. So why should you respond now instead of later? Why not just put it off? Because there are unseen sights to be seen by coming into the light. The light will illuminate goodness and beauty and meaning and purpose and passion and purity and joy here and now, which can be found nowhere else. But more importantly, the light illuminates the beauty and glory of God who is meant to be savored and delighted in. There is a joy unlike any joy available on earth by coming into the light and experiencing the beauty and love and eternity of God here and now. But we've loved the darkness instead of the light. So we have to cry out, I can't see, I can't hear, I can't understand. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. Have mercy on me. Shine into my life. And you might not know what the light's going to expose. You might not know where the light will lead you. You might not even understand the light totally. But this much we do know. If you walk in the light and believe in the light, you will be adopted as a child of the light. Which means God, your Father and my Father and our Father, He will guide you out of the darkness and into His eternal light because you're His beloved child. And He will not let you go. And that is our great hope as we prepare for Christmas this year. The light made our home His own so that His home could become ours. He came into our darkness so that we might come into the light. So he calls us, walk in the light, believe in the light.